0: Hello, dearest listener. You have tuned in to At Your Peril by Arthur McBain and Owen Jenkins. Before we begin, a parish notice. A warning. What you are about to hear may terrify and horrify you to the very core of your being. It may also involve content unsuitable for children, those with a nervous disposition, or wimps. If you must, turn off your receiver... No. In that case, we shall begin
1: at your peril. I had a dream. This was during a dark night two years ago. Rain pattered against my Velux windows of my New York loft conversion. I tossed and turned. In the dream, I imagined a rock and roll band. Screaming fans, loud music, irresponsible drug use. When I awoke, I had a strange sense of deja vu. As if the dream had been real. At that point, I had no idea what I would uncover. But deja vu? Well, it doesn't come close to the truth. And so begins this tale. Put your mind back. It's 1966, and a band explodes onto the rock music scene like a juggernaut. Overnight, they become the soundtrack of a generation. Anyone who's anyone is hanging out with them. Warhol, Hendrix, Wells, they only lasted five short years. But in that time, they release six studio albums and two live records. They sell out Madison Square Garden 30 times and are the first band to play a concert in every country on the planet, a feat which is yet to be replicated. A lost John Lennon interview for Rolling Stone magazine quotes, I would sell my soul for just one ounce of these guys' talent. The band's name, Bill Coyote and The Bargain. Say that name now and you'll be met with blank, uninterested expression. But in the late 60s, every radio station played them on repeat. Every lyric was common knowledge and they were said to be bigger than planet Earth itself. No, one critic went even so far to say that they were the biggest band in the universe. i defy anyone to find a band bigger than that. So, why does it seem that Bill Coyote and The Bargain have disappeared from history? Why is it that even people old enough to remember them have no recollection of them ever having existed. Why are all the records, the newspaper articles, and t-shirts nowhere to be found? Well, after years of digging, I have found an answer. I warn you, it's not going to be easy to accept. It's an answer which very few people know, let alone believe. The journey took me to far-flung places around the world, made me doubt my own sanity, and at times brought me close to breakdown. Sit tight, listen at your peril, because this ain't a Beach Boys retrospective. This is far, far more fucking fucked. From the creators of Terry, A Life on Tape, Time Soup, and Crime Soup, I'm Baker Bugbrook, and this, is Bill Coyote and the Bargain, the truth. I met music historian Gary O'Flannery in his London home.
0: Well, you see, Baker, the thing that's interesting here is the sheer size of Bill Coyote and the Bargain. They were more famous than the Beatles, Elvis, Cher. They, by all rights, should be remembered as the most influential rock band in history. But they aren't. There has never been anyone who has even gotten close to the level of stardom these guys enjoyed. Let me see. Uh, To put it into context, it's as if Beyoncé had just disappeared and everyone immediately forgets her. No,
1: not forgets her. Erases her. Gary is right. But Beyoncé doesn't even do it justice. She's just not famous enough to draw the comparison. It's Beyoncé squared. I know, right? You see, Bill Coyote and The Bargain were adored by everyone. There wasn't a single demographic they didn't speak to. Not a single culture they didn't traverse. They were considered to be the sound of humanity itself. Gary sits back in his mustard Art Deco armchair, which is more comfortable to look at than to actually sit in. Believe me, I tried. Gary purses his lips. He looks troubled. Face awash with mystery. There's a
0: big problem, Baker, one that bothers me enormously. You see, I can't remember any of their songs. I can't find a single record that they put out. Believe me, I have tried. There's a man, his name's Dave or, or, or Chaz, old fella on the market here in Notting Hill, that sells second-hand vinyl. You know, the sort of bloke who could make more money doing almost anything else, but takes his payment in his love of music, you know? Well, I was chatting to him just yesterday about this very interview. We were trying to think what we could possibly say to be of use. I mean, Dave, or or, or Chaz, or, or whatever, was saying that had I not mentioned the name, Bill Coyote and the Bargain, he'd most likely never have said that name out loud for the rest of his life. And it's true. It's like a far-off part of my memory. And there's nothing online or in any books. And, and Dave or, or, or Chaz or, or whatever made a few calls and always the same response. People being like, oh, Bill Coyote in the bargain. Bloody hell, that rings a bell. But never anything solid, hard, concrete, you know? It's terribly frustrating. Uh, I mean, where are all their records? Get them on Spotify right now. (laughs) Back then, you know, I I was only a nipper at the time when they were about. I was born 58, so I'd have been... Say, seven or eight. That's right. Seven or eight. I, I remember listening to them. I even remember spending hours looking at their vinyl sleeves sat on the floor of my mum and dad's living room. But it's strange because... It's like a, a new memory. I only remember the act itself of looking. I don't remember what pictures were on the album sleeves. I don't remember a single song title or tune. And, well, had you not got in touch and asked me about Bill Coyote in the Bargain, just like Chaz or, 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 or Dave or whatever, I'd have never remembered their name. It's a worrisome thing for a music historian to doubt history itself. I mean, Apart from us all going, oh yeah, can we actually be certain that they even existed? <laughs> it makes me feel like a pretty crummy historian. I found this. Oh, wow. God, of course. That's... Oh, that's... Wow. I have all sorts of emotions welling up inside me. That's so... I mean... God, it's like looking at the cover of Abbey Road or or Nirvana's Nevermind. I mean,
1: it's, it's like so
0: obvious. Oh, bloody
1: hell. What I gave to Gary is a printout of an album cover. I had found it on a forum on the dark web, just about the only place where there's a discussion group about Bill Coyote and the Bargain. It's the artwork for their final studio album, Spheres of Heaven which presumably relates to a speech from the play Dr. Faustus, written by Christopher Marlowe in the latter part of the 15th century.
0: Ah, Faustus, now hast thou but one bare hour to leave. And still, you ever-moving spheres of heaven that time may cease and midnight never come.
1: Well, midnight must have come, because that cover, which Gary O'Flannery was so moved by, shows a full moon painted red. No words, no title written over it. Nothing else. Just the red moon. The blood moon. Do you remember what it was called? It was called Spheres of Heaven.
0: Oh shit! Uh,
1: Excuse my French. (laughs) Of
0: course it was! Spheres of Heaven, blimey! Baker, you're absolutely blowing my mind here. Spheres of bloody heaven!
1: (laughs) I took the printed piece of paper back, folded it gently, and placed it in my 100% recycled tote. And then, the strangest thing happened. Interesting, isn't it? The artwork is so evocative. Uh, Which artwork? Spheres of Heaven. Oh,
0: bloody hell. That rings a bell.
1: Was that one of their albums? Uh, yes. Gary had completely forgotten about the piece of paper showing the cover. His mind had immediately erased the image and the name. Also, on the same forum thread was the track listing. And I was shocked. The album only had one song. One 66-minute song called The Bargain.
2: Hey, it's you. I made you look your
1: What you're hearing is the beautiful, raw, emotional, heartfelt, melodious work of British singer and songwriter Emily Lang. During an interview with Gary, he realized that she could be of use to me. Why? Well, I'll let her tell you herself. I flew back to the UK. Firstly, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me.
2: Ah, don't worry. It's a pleasure. I'm not busy today, so. Also, I'm a fan of your work, so it's kind of cool.
1: Touched. Flattered. I love your music.
2: (laughs) Thanks. That's really kind.
1: So, Bill Coyote and The Bargain.
2: Yeah, uh, my dad used to sing them to me.
1: And do you remember what it went like?
2: Sort of, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. I can remember the word rise for some reason, and it was like on a long note, it had something like, um, rise, that sort of tune. But I mean, I asked dad last night if he could remember, and he said that he's never even heard of the band, which was a bit like, you know mental, because, I mean, they definitely existed. You wouldn't be doing this if they didn't exist.
1: Have you heard of the Mandela Effect? No. Well, basically, it's a phenomenon where people collectively remember things wrong. Conspiracy theorists think it's proof of an alternative universe. It was named after Nelson Mandela, who, when he died in 2013, countless people came out swearing that he died before in prison in the 80s but it's all over the place. People believing that it's sex in the city, but it's sex and the city. The fact that people remember the Monopoly guy wearing a monocle, but he doesn't. The line in Forrest Gump isn't, life is like a box of chocolates, but rather, life was like a box of chocolates. Shall I go on? You look like your mind is being blown.
2: Go on, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's it's a nifty trick. Well, Darth Vader never said, Luke, I am your father. He just said, I am your father. We all think of Freddie Mercury belting out of the world at the end of We Are the Champions, but that never happened. It's essentially a mass misremembering of pop culture.
2: And do you think that's happened here? Possibly.
1: Or possibly not. As it would later transpire, for a band to have been so forgotten, the biggest band in history wiped from our collective consciousness like that, leaving behind barely a shadow? Not even that? Leaving behind the shadow of a shadow? No. This wasn't the Mandela Effect. This was something much more sinister. And the clues had been glaring at me all along. And then... Sat in Emily Lang's studio, something happened which, I'll be honest, chilled me to the bone.
2: Oh, I'm so sorry, I thought I'd turn that off.
1: Oh, it's okay, go ahead. That's weird. Everything okay?
2: I just got a text from an unknown number. Oh, right. It's telling me not to speak to you. Huh? Look, do not speak to Baker Bugbrook. He is a liar, a charlatan, and dangerous. Your safety depends on it.
1: What the hell? Who could that be from?
2: I don't uh, know. Hang on, I'll call back. Uh, Number no, not recognised. <laughs> That's pretty weird.
1: <laughs> what the hell?
2: Sorry, <laughs> I actually. I'm actually uh, quite busy. I have, I have work to be getting on with. So, do you think you could, um, maybe we could reschedule or.
1: Leaving Emily Lang's studio, I had a sick feeling in my stomach. Who had left that message on her cell? I mean, I'm Baker Bugbrook, the podcast world's nicest guy. It didn't make sense, it had to be related. My only thought was it could be a jealous and disgruntled podcaster, but who could possibly know what I was investigating? I'm famously discreet. My mind was fogged, but I caught a train and headed back to London. With no more leads, I turned to the only place I could think of. A place I had sworn never to return to. The dark web. I logged on to the selfsame forum thread from which I had downloaded the cover of Spheres of Heaven and made a post. Hi, I'm a journalist, I wrote. I am looking into Bill Coyote and The Bargain. Would appreciate any response at all. And one response came back, almost immediately. Baker, I was a great fan of your piece about the Essex Demon, It said. I was stunned. I always cover my tracks when I'm on the dark web. It would have been nearly impossible to trace my IP address, but However they did it, they certainly had something they wanted to tell me. And that's where I was heading. To meet a person who goes by the handle RISE. The French Alps. Mountains. Air. Lots of air. Mountains. Sun. More air. It's a place unlike any other place. The mountain ranges, sure. But this is different. Distinctly alpine. The air is, well, French. Smells like an air freshener. It had taken me a couple of days to reach rise. I met them outside a small village shop. They were wearing a deep crimson three-piece suit. I don't have an eye for fashion beyond turtleneck sweaters and Birkenstocks, but I'd put my life savings on the fact that this suit was bespoke, tailored. Rise looked so out of place amid the rural setting that I was almost speechless. As I approached, I took my dictaphone out. But Rise staggered back, almost theatrically. No, they said. You aren't going to record me unless you agree to my terms. What terms? I asked, eyes narrow. I do not want my identity known. As such, you are not to convey my gender, and if you record my voice, you are to distort it out of recognition. Their accent was baffling, a mix of European countries, like a bad and offensive impression. They seemed shifty, nervous, worried.
2: It is likely you're being followed. Come quick, Where's this hat.
1: At Ryza's words, I was overcome with horror. Without a moment's thought, I followed him up a small mountain path which snaked this way and that, between evergreen trees and beside small mountain streams glistening in the summer sun. Eventually, we arrived at an old chapel, ancient, almost in ruins. On the stonework, the carved words, Inglise de Malahur Pesher," or Church of the Unhappy Sinners. That's rock and roll, I thought. Rise took me around the back of the chapel to a large wooden door set into the stone. They had keys. Are you a priest? I asked. They flashed their eyes towards me, a glint in their eye. Yes. I must admit that shivers shot down my spine at the way they said the word. Full of simplicity. The chapel was cold on the inside. Freezing, in fact. I pulled my roll neck tighter around my neck and followed Rise into a back room, a chamber where a small wood-burning stove was glowing, beside which was a tiny blind monk, chanting under his breath. You can take a seat. Thanks. After some niceties, chit-chat about the journey, and my previous work, of which Rise seemed to know a lot, we turned to the subject that I am so eager to learn more about. Who was Bill Coyote?
2: Not one member of Bill Coyote and the Bargain was a musician. You know that. They were priests.
1: My mouth drops open. I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. A rock band made entirely of men of the cloth? Surely not. I look around at the dark, ancient walls surrounding us and imagined Bill Coyote and the Bargain sat in this very room, planning to form a band. It didn't seem possible. Didn't seem at all in keeping with the usual rock and roll trajectory. Priests? Really? I asked. I met with a frosty look. Would you like to meet them? Sorry, I don't understand. Are they still alive? Are the band still alive?
2: No, but I will help you visit them. Do not try to wake up the earthly rain once more. At
1: this point, Rise stood up, their hand disappearing into their jacket pocket and retrieving a knife. I get chills just thinking about it, let alone listening back to the footage. It's too chilling to play here to you, too graphic and gruesome. It wouldn't be ethical. So instead... I will endure listening to it on your behalf and I will describe what I hear as I hear it. I am placing on my noise-canceling earphones and pressing play now. The sound of Rai's pouncing on me, uh, he screams the words, in the name of the father, before the sound of my chair breaking under our weight, I am screaming deep, Blood-curdling screams. Rise is now grunting as he tries to wrestle me. Ah! Sorry, that was the point at which the dictaphone clattered on the floor. It was loud. More screaming. Rise is speaking in Latin. He now says, I am doing this for you, O lord, as your holy mission against darkness. I wail a a spine-tingling roar as I fight back. Now the tiny blind monk laughs maniacally. Uh, I am strong. It is clear from the noises that Rise is making that I am strong, uh, stronger than I look, most likely, and then the sound of me slapping Rise uh, uh, across the face, the sound of a scream knife entering my flesh, a scuffle, the dictaphone rustles, the door opening, panting, running, uh, footsteps, the outside world, the sound of escape. That was the moment that Rise stabbed me, a flesh wound. Nothing serious, luckily, but I bled all the way back to the village. I staggered around, mouth flapping, complexion pale. Passers-by found me, a couple, on a hiking holiday. I sobbed, asking for help, and lucky for me, the pair were doctors who promptly saw to my wounds and got me to the nearest hospital. As I sat in the hospital waiting room, waiting to be released, I listened back to my footage. One thing stood out. Sivultus diabli et invines diabli. If you look for the devil, you will find the devil. The truth is, I didn't think about Bill Coyote and the bargain again for another year. My wounds healed just as summer turned to fall, and fall in turn turned to winter, which, as sure as winter turns to spring, turned to spring. Spring brought with it shoots of tulips and roses in Brooklyn window boxes, and, after some time, it also brought summer. A whole year. A cycle. A year. I had been working on a piece for The New Yorker about Studio 54, the notorious nightclub, where Bill Coyote and the Bargain reared its ugly head. A part of me knew it would. As sure as winter. Well, as sure as winter turns to spring. And it turns out that Rise's Latin phrase was wrong. It's not, if you look for the devil, you will find the devil. But rather, if you looked for the devil, the devil finds you. Could you please state your name and who you are?
2: My name is Hetty, and I make you your coffee every morning.
1: This is Hetty. She makes my coffee every morning. She works in the Starbucks on my street. Every morning I go in for my caffeine fix and affogato, and Hetty is there. She came to New York as an overseas student and has never left. She is always happy, always charming, and makes a mean coffee. To look at Hetty, one thing stands out more than any other. Her eyes are the brightest shade of blue. Honestly, you notice them immediately. Remember this. You see, those bright blue eyes end up becoming a warning signal later in the story. And can you explain to me why I brought you to be interviewed by me?
2: Well, I was singing a song while I was pouring the espresso onto your ice cream.
1: And would you possibly do a rendition of that singing for the tape?
2: Yeah, uh, I guess it was, uh, Rise!
1: She was singing Bill Coyote and the Bargain. I couldn't believe it. I said, hey, do you know what you're singing? And she said, yes, she did, and that it was this little-known 60s band called Bill Coyote and the Bargain. And so you know the band well?
2: Yeah, my mom used to be into them. When she died, I inherited all her records. I still have them.
1: Hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm sorry. You own the records?
2: Yeah. Why, are they rare or something?
1: What was that? A crow just flew into my window. What the shit? Is it okay? It, I think it's dying. There's, there's blood. Its beak has been smashed to pieces. Was this an omen? Whatever it was, whenever I started to try and find out more about Bill Coyote and the bargain, something was trying to stop me. I know I'm probably being alarmist. Birds fly into windows all the time, don't they? I told Hetty that we better cut the interview short so that I could deal with the crow and asked if I could take a look at her Bill Coyote and the bargain records. She told me that that would be fine and so, tempting fate, I arranged to meet her at her apartment the following day. Her apartment was spacious, high up in a Brooklyn block, retro sofas, House plants adorning every tabletop, a bare brick wall, and there, in the corner of the living room, was Hetty's pride and joy, her record player, surrounded by tens, no, hundreds of vinyl LPs, everything from Janis Joplin to the Flaming Lips, looping back and around to Radiohead via Notorious B.I.G. She told me that it was her pride and joy. That her mother, who had worked for a little-known Russian music PR company, had been so obsessed with vinyl that she'd passed on the fascination to her. And there, nestled near the beginning of the shelf, as it was in alphabetical order, were all six Bill Coyote studio albums and their two live records. I pulled them out like a librarian dealing with Shakespeare's first folio, the feeling of touching these records with my own hands was, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it, orgasmic. I wept silent tears. Do you know the significance of these records? No. These are quite possibly the only remaining copies of these albums. It's as if Every single other copy has been thrown off the planet, sent into space. But these, these remain. You are lucky, Hetty. Very, very lucky. Hetty heads into the kitchen to pour us both coffee and leaves me alone with the artifacts. A light sweat had come over me. A feeling of unimaginable... Intensity. They look so familiar. Now I was looking at them... I felt as though I'd always known them. Gary O'Flannery put it perfectly when he said, It's like looking at the cover for Abbey Road or Nirvana's Nevermind. I looked at each in turn. 1966. Bill Coyote and the Bargain. Self-titled. The cover is of all six members standing on a staircase, smiling at the camera. They are all wearing thick coats and flares. 1967. Asmodeus Sounds. A cover filled with what looks like a collage of clippings of various states of luxury. Food, wine, people reclining in chaise lounges. 1968, Coyote Fever. The cover is a photograph of the band running down a street being chased by an army of fans, mostly young women. 1969, The Red Album. Just a red sleeve with Bill Coyote and the bargain embossed into the cardboard itself. 1970, The Dark Side of the Tune. The cover shows a red triangle. It is almost worth noting at this point that Pink Floyd wouldn't release Dark Side of the Moon for another three years. And 1971, Spheres of Heaven, The Big Blood Moon. The two live albums were Songs in the Key of C Major, live recordings from North America, and The Rumors Are True, live from the Madison Square Garden. I stare in wonderment. I cannot believe that I am here. Looking at these records, something comes over me and I decide to play the first one on Hetty's player. I didn't ask her permission and I know it was rude, but something came over me. I slide their first titled album out of its sleeve and place it on the turntable. I lift the stylus and place it gently on the outer edge of the disc. The record made a slow groaning sound, like a voice slowed down to a fraction of its normal speed. The needle suddenly scratches across the entire record and ended up in the middle. I tried again. But the record inexplicably kept scratching through. I inspected the grooves, the ruts, as they are known, only to see that there wasn't a scratch on the record. It looked perfectly playable. I tried again. This happened with all six albums and two live records. Not a single note was played. Not a single record was playable. Not. A single ounce of my excitement was satisfied. I decided that there was only one thing I could do in order to retain my high regard for the journalistic code. I had to join Hetty in the kitchen and help her with the coffees, that, and to tell her that I might have broken her priceless vinyls. But, to my amazement, the kitchen was empty. Coffee granules were strewn across the work surface and oat milk was pooling on the floor as though she dropped the bottle in a hurry. Something very strange was happening and my gut was telling me that Hetty had been kidnapped. I called out her name, knowing that it would be utterly useless. And then something caught my eye. There was writing on the refrigerator. I approached, a sense of doom growing in my stomach. There was a message. Baker, it said. You want answers? Followed by a telephone number. A telephone number with an international dialing code. Russia. As if this wasn't terrifying enough, the note was written in blood. Tune in next time for the climatic conclusion of The Bargain with Baker Budbrook. Bye-bye.